All right. Thank you, Brother Dennis. <clears throat> I will have to say that was a new song for me as well. Um, in fact, it's such a rare song. I, I think it was copyrighted in 1941, and it was copyrighted by Majesty Music, which uh, is the publisher of our hymnal. And so I've never seen this in another hymnal before. Um, and when I went this morning to create the song slides that I put up, usually all I have to do is we have special software and I'll type in the name of the song and it will find it. And of course, I often find that uh, songs that are in the computer may have many verses that are not in our hymnal. So uh, a song that Dennis uh, led us in last week had about eight verses to it. And I think our hymnal only had four. So I have to be careful to check the hymnal and make sure that the order of the slides is right. So sometimes I have a singing verses one, two, five, and, and three in order to match the order of hymnal. But this morning when I typed in the word, the title of this song, uh, it didn't exist anywhere. And so that was uh, uh, kind of a, a bit of a problem for me, but I typed in the words manually and uh, got the got the slides up. So at any rate, I just wanted to make you aware of the fact that this is uh, definitely not a common uh, song uh, whatsoever. Um, but anyway, I'm, I'm grateful uh, for it. It's, uh, it is a good song, probably needs to be something we sing more often. wonder if you'd stand just in honor of God's word, and I'm not going to do that because then you'd be looking at a camera of my picture of my belly button here, but uh, I think just in honor of God's word, if you would stand and... Uh, yeah, Caleb, I appreciate you pulling out on the camera since I'm not there in the pulpit anyway. Uh, the view's a little better. All right. All right. So Second Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 9. For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but held them captive in Tartarus with chains of darkness and handed them over to be kept for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a proclaimer of righteousness, and seven others, when he brought a flood on the world of the ungodly, and condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction, reducing them to ashes, having appointed them as an example for those who are going to be ungodly, and rescued righteous Lot, worn down by the way of life of lawless persons in licentiousness. For that righteous man, as he lived among them day after day, was tormenting his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he was seeing and hearing. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to reserve the unrighteous to be punished at the day of judgment, and especially those who go after the flesh and defiling lust and who despise authority. Let's pray. Father, just uh, help us to dig out the meaning of this passage as we continue our study in Second Peter and to begin to answer some questions that maybe plague some of us, as we read our Bibles and study and give us things that we don't understand, that you would open our hearts to your word today, and especially that we would see within ourselves if there's any wicked way of which we need to repent. And Father, we do ask that you would help us to seek revival, because yes, even our own church, First Baptist Church Lost Cleanness, we need revival, and I need it personally. Father, we love you, and we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you. you. May be seated. So I want to I want to back up just a little bit uh, because the last week, as I was getting toward the end of my slides, I hurriedly rushed through some things that I want to make sure uh, that we get. And uh, so one of the things I wanted to talk about in greater detail is I briefly mentioned the three types of faith, and I think it's important that we understand this. And and this is taken from James chapter two. So in James chapter 2, uh, verses 17 through 26, it says this, Even so faith, if it has not works, is dead, being alone. Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I'll show thee my faith by my works. Thou believest there is one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. But wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he had offered Isaac his son upon the altar? 
Seest thou how faith wrought with his works, and by works was faith made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled, which saith, Abraham believed God, and it was imputed unto him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see then how that by works a man is justified, and not by faith only. Likewise also was not Rahab the harlot justified by works, when she had received the messengers and had sent them out another way. For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. All right. So let's, uh, there's three kinds of faith that are described here. And uh, also I'm going to ask uh, maybe Dylan family, if you guys can mute your mic, uh, I'd appreciate it because it's kind of coming through just a little bit on this end. Um, so let's let's look at these three different kinds of faith. Thank you. Uh, and, and the first here is this idea of dead faith. He says, even so faith, if it has not works, is dead being alone. So we need to be clear about something. James is not saying that we have to add works to our faith in order to be saved. Uh, we know uh, Paul tells the Ephesians, for by grace are you saved through faith. That not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Titus chapter 3, 5, Paul tells Titus, it's not of works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy that he saved us. So it, it's it's not our works. So James, though, is writing from a little different perspective than the other apostles. Uh, the perspective that he's writing from is this. He believes that while God sees our heart, the only way men can know that we're saved is by seeing our works. And James is saying that if we have real saving faith, then it will show in our works. So the first thing he's saying is if you have true faith, true faith in somebody's life can be seen by others, that's other people, because it manifests itself in outward behavior. Uh, you know, I've given you the story about how I was standing on a ladder one day trying to replace a light fixture in the church, and uh, even though the so the switch was turned off at the wall, I did not have the circuit breaker turned off, and somehow or other I touched a hot wire, and I ended up immediately changing my behavior because you don't get a jolt from 120 volts of electricity without it changing your your behavior you know uh and so i think i jumped off the ladder i probably said albuquerque which is my default word when i'm really upset about something and uh and it changed my my behavior well when we meet jesus christ the king of kings and lord of lords and a real experience where we've received him as our lord and savior we can't hide that it's going to change our behavior if people can see us after we've made a profession of faith and and been baptized, and they can't tell the difference from before we made a profession of faith and were baptized, then we weren't really born again. We weren't really saved. And a lot of people are going around thinking that they're saved because they came forward during a church service, and they talked to the preacher, and they said a few words, and they prayed together, and then they got baptized. And yet Jesus says there's going to be a lot of people at Judgment Day who are going to say to him, well, Master, haven't we done this in your name and done that in your name? And he's going to say, depart into outer darkness for i never knew you he doesn't say i knew you one time and then i threw you away because jesus won't do that but he says i never knew you in other words you never had a relationship with me even though these people were citing proof of their religion uh proof of going through the motions uh and yet he says i never knew you so it's possible for us to go through the motions and not really have a relationship with jesus christ and that's the key thing that we, we need to understand. So a person who says the words of faith, but their life doesn't show works that back up the words. In other words, in Jimmy Johnson way of speaking, they have a talk, but not a walk. Then that person isn't manifesting that they have a true faith in Jesus Christ. So if you have a faith that hasn't changed the way you live and the way you treat others and the way you speak and the things you do, then you're not truly redeemed. And that's, that's crucial for us to understand. Then he gives a second kind of faith. In verse 19, he says, Thou believest there's one God, thou doest well, the devils also believe and tremble. So uh, some people not only intellectually believe the gospel, that's the first kind of faith, dead faith, 
but they also are a little emotionally stirred by it. They 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 feel something happen in them when they heard the gospel. Maybe they cried a little bit. Maybe they got a little trembly. Maybe they could just feel like something was working on them, and maybe they had to grip the pews to keep from uh, going forward. In other words, it's possible to give intellectual assent to the gospel and also feel moved by the gospel. Now, by the way, there's a great... Uh, emphasis on emotions amongst charismatic Christians. These are people that uh, speak in tongues and and they practice other, what they call the gifts of the spirit. And of course, the speaking in tongues disappeared from Christianity for almost 1800 years before it makes its appearance again in history uh, through the ministry or the work of uh, Dr. Palmer and his wife, Phoebe, in Canada to begin with, and it's the modern-day charismatic movement spread from that. Um, but we, for 1,800 years of, of uh, Christian history, you know, tongue-speaking and other charismatic practices like holy laughter, holy vomiting, and some other things that they have now, uh, wasn't really a part of, of Christian history. So it's kind of a modern-day uh, reinvention. Uh, but you will notice that there's a great emphasis amongst charismatic Christians, uh, which their churches are predominantly uh, led by by women uh, in terms of the people who populate the congregation and do stuff. Uh, but but there's a great emphasis on emotion. It's about feeling. You know, you know it's real because you felt it. I actually had a lady one time who was attending the church that I pastored, but she had been going to a charismatic church a lot also. And one day at uh, a teaching of a truth that uh, that I was giving from the book of Ephesians, she actually said while I was preaching, I don't care what the Bible says. I know what I have experienced. And anytime you put the experience that you have above the revelation, written revelation of the word of God, you are in danger of heresy. Um, someone uh, I know that uh, I believe committed heresy a couple of years ago, uh, said to me, I just feel like the Bi- that it means more than what the Bible says. And he was talking about a particular passage. But when you, when you, I, anytime I hear the words, I feel like my, my ears instantly uh, listen in, tune in, the hair on the back of my neck goes up because feelings or emotions are deceptive. Now, what James is saying, he says, now, you, you believe, that's good, that's great, uh, but you also even, you actually even feel. And he says, you know, the, de- the, the demons believe and they tremble. Uh, demons got emotional when Christ was around. Uh, they were begging him, you know, please don't just kick us out, give us somewhere to go, throw us into the pigs. And then the pigs ran off of a cliff. And so uh, they have to do, they have to go somewhere. They, they feel a terror uh, being exposed to God. So if you have a, a mental assent to the truths of the gospel, and maybe you even feel moved, but you don't allow it to change you, you don't by an act of your will actually receive Christ so that he becomes your Lord and Savior, then at that point in time, you have basically the same kind of faith that demons have. They believe that Jesus is the Son of God. They believe he died for us. They believe he rose again from the dead. They even tremble. But Obviously, they can't even be converted. And then there's dynamic faith. And a dynamic faith is illustrated in in James by Abraham. And he says, was not Abraham our father justified by works? Now, we need to be very careful here. Abraham was willing to offer up Isaac. And it, it actually says this, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, upon the altar? Now, let's pause there and remember a few things. One is... He was willing to offer up Isaac. He didn't actually do that. In his heart, he did. He actually bound Isaac to the top of the altar. He he raised his knife to slay his son because he thought that's what God was telling him to do. And then the angel stopped him. And we know that God provided a ram in the thickets. And so they went and got that ram out and they sacrificed that as well. And Abraham named the place Jehovah Jireh, which means the Lord will provide himself a sacrifice. And it was on that same mountain, Mount uh, Moriah, on one particular hill of that mountain called Calvary, that Jesus, uh, God's son, 
was indeed offered up for our sins. And Abraham had a chance to see that. Uh, Jesus said of Abraham, Abraham saw my day and was glad. And so Abraham was given a glimpse into the future where he saw that on that very same mountain where he was offering up his son, that God would one day offer up his son. Um, and so it was really an incredible thing uh, that Abraham was given that glimpse uh, into the future. But the other thing is, when he says, was not Abraham justified by works, it doesn't mean he was justified before God. What James is saying is, the only way you and I really know that Abraham was the real deal, the real deal, he was really a believer, is because he acted on his belief, and we could see evidence of that. And that's the key thing there. Uh, that's the thing that you need to understand. Is, uh, and so he says, Seest thou how faith wrought with his works? In other words, faith, real faith, produced works. By works was faith made perfect. And what he's not saying is, remember, God sees our heart. God could see the very moment that Abraham placed his trust in in Jehovah, in in Yahweh. Okay, Uh, that happened in his heart. But how do we know Abraham had faith with God? We see it because of his works. So by works, his faith was made perfect or revealed to us. And he says, and the scripture was fulfilled, which saith, Abraham believed God. You can't see belief. You can see works, but you can't see belief. And it was imputed unto him for righteousness. In other words, at the moment that Abraham believed God, God took out the record books in heaven and wrote Abraham's name down in those record books. And it says it was imputed unto him for righteousness. It was recorded that he was righteous and he was called the friend of God. So before God, Abraham was righteous and was called a friend at the moment he believed God. But for us, we knew that Abraham was the real deal when he was willing to offer up Isaac, his son, upon the altar. So Abraham intellectually received the truths of God. He was emotionally stirred, but then by an act of his will, he obeyed God. And that's the real key, is real faith uh, believes God intellectually, is stirred by God emotionally, but then acts on God's will volitionally or with your by an act of your will. So you and I have the advantage of knowing Abraham was a believer. We could never see Abraham's heart, but we can see how his faith acted out in, in terms of works. So true belief requires three things, an intellectual agreement with the gospel, a stirring of your heart, and an act of your will to receive Christ and follow him as your Lord. And when that truly happens, your life is permanently and indelibly changed by Jesus Christ so that your faith becomes ob- obvious and evident to others. Now, I, I have to, to tell you that it is possible for a person that has been changed by Jesus Christ, it's possible for them to backslide. It's possible for them to start allowing compromise in their lives, and sin in their lives, just as David was a man after God's own heart, and then he committed Bathsheba, uh, adultery with Bathsheba. Um, So we can do that, and yet we're miserable if we're a true believer with our sin. Uh, We know it's wrong, and the Holy Spirit of God nags on us. David was not a happy camper after he had Uriah the Hittite uh, killed to cover up his sin with Bathsheba. And then he wasn't a happy camper when the baby died. And he went nearly a full year from the time that he commits his sin before he confesses his sin when Nathan the prophet confronts him. So we can we can backslide for a while, but we're never happy. Our joy is gone because in our hearts, the Holy Spirit of God is grieved, and he's making us feel that grief with him. Uh, and then not only that, If we are truly God's children, we can't just get away with sin. He will chastise us. He'll, he'll, he'll whoop us a bit, not as a means of permanent punishment, but as a means of turning our hearts back to Him. Just like when you have to, to give a spanking to your kids, it's not because you enjoy punishing them or you want to beat them. Uh, it's because you want to turn their hearts to walking in obedience to you and to the Lord and you're trying to help them grow up to be successful, and you're trying to equip them to be the best individuals they can be. But the real problem is there's a lot of people that walk around saying religious words, but they live day to day like Jesus doesn't make a difference in their lives. 
I think it's as easy to do in the homeschooling community, by the way, or in the conservative evangelical Christian circles because we we value our homes and we talk about family responsibility. We talk about how fathers need to be strong and be the priest of their family and, and lead people in the Lord. And so we raise our children in such a way as that they're going to say the right words and hopefully they're going to uh, have actions that uh, depict Christian behavior. And yet it's possible to obey these from from an external compulsion rather than or an external need to be compliant rather than from the fact that Jesus has really changed our hearts from the inside. So we need to do what Paul uh, told the Corinthians they needed to do, which was examine yourselves to see whether you be in the faith. Prove your own selves. And Paul was speaking to a very carnal church. A lot of people there were not Christians at all. Some people were Christians, but there were babes in Christ that had never grown in maturity and wisdom. And, and like I said, there were just flat-out lost people there, uh, you know, Christians, quote-unquote Christians, suing other Christians before non-Christian judges and a man living in immorality with a stepmother and uh, just a whole host of bad problems. And Paul says, you know what? Uh, you Corinthians really need to check yourselves to see if you really are the real deal. Do you have real faith? Can you give evidence of that? Because they, well, if you're on the outside looking in, it doesn't look so good. Now, Peter is going to give us three examples of God's certain judgment, one on fallen angels, one on the pre-flood world, and then one on Sodom and Gomorrah. So let's start with the fallen angels and the court. Um In Ezekiel 28, we have a prophecy against the king of Tyre, that's spelled T-Y-R-E. And uh, it's a, Tyre is a fascinating place in Scripture because God pro, uh, prophesies or tells us in advance it's going to be judged, even tells us in advance that no city would ever be built back on the site of Tyre, but that it would be a place forever where fishermen would dry their nets. And to this very day, in 2020, uh, where Tyre was, their city was... It was an island, and their city was destroyed, and the, the the parts of the city, the walls and the columns, the buildings, the things were thrown into the ocean to create a causeway so it is now connected to the mainland. And to this day, fishermen dry their nets on the side of Tyre. And you, you got to be pretty impressed when the Word of God not only brings you a prophecy, but that nearly 2,000 years later, uh, just shy of 2,000 years, you're still seeing that prophecy fulfilled to the most minute detail. It's really an amazing thing. So here, uh, Satan was the, uh, his name was Lucifer, which means light bearer. Uh, he was the most impressive of the angels. He was basically the archangel. He was the chief over all the angels. He was the chief musician of heaven. Uh, he, the Bible tells us that he, was in charge of all these instruments in heaven. So you have to understand that when Lucifer fell from heaven, he he now has a different style of music. And there is godly music and ungodly music because he himself was the chief musician of heaven at one time. And so let's let's look at Ezekiel twenty eight and, and remember again, this is about the 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 king of Tyre, and yet the language in the middle of this prophecy changes from from the the normal king to a language that clearly indicates uh, Lucifer. It indicates an angelic being because things are said of this being that could not be said of a normal man. And there's actually some change in the language here, but it says this, moreover, the word of the Lord came into me saying, son of man, take up a lamentation upon the king of Tyrus and saying to him, thus saith the Lord God, thou sealest up the sum full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Uh, now, obviously, the king was a very successful person. He uh, engaged in a lot of commerce. He collected lots of gold and silver. Uh, but the king of Tyre had gotten pretty cocky. He had gotten arrogant. Uh, and in that regard, he and Satan have a lot in common. But then he says some things that you cannot say about the human man who was the king of Tyre. He says, Thou hast been in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was I covering, the sardius, topaz, and the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, and the jasper, the sapphire, the emerald, and the carbuncle, and gold, the workmanship of thy tabrets and of thy pipes, those are musical instruments, was prepared in thee in the day that thou was created. 
Thou art the anointed cherub that covereth, and I have set thee so. Thou wast upon the holy mountain of God. This means that they were in the that that Lucifer was in the very presence of God Himself. Thou hast walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. Now, all, all of those things cannot be said about the the human king of Tyre. So, basically, he starts a prophecy against the king of Tyre, and then he moves to describing the the demon that has taken over the king of Tyre's life, namely Satan himself. And uh, so we see this this deal. Let's go on. Thou was perfect in thy ways from the day thou was created till iniquity was found in thee. By the multitude of thy merchandise. Now, we, we're kind of shifting back to the king here a little bit because certainly uh, he did have a lot of merchandise. He says, they have filled the midst of thee with violence and thou hast sinned. Now we're kind of switching back to the heavenly scene. Therefore, I will cast thee as profane out of the mountain of God, and I'll destroy thee, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stone of fires. Thine heart was lifted up because of thy beauty. Thou hast corrupted thy wisdom by reason of thy brightness. By the way, Paul tells the Corinthians that Satan to this day still appears as an angel of light. Uh, so he still appears that way. In other words, Satan appears to look good, even though he's exactly the opposite. Uh, he says, I will cast thee to the ground. I'll lay thee before kings that they may behold thee. Thou hast defiled thy sanctuaries by the multitude of thine iniquities, by the iniquity of thy traffic. Therefore, will I bring forth a fire from the midst of thee. It shall devour thee, and I'll bring thee to ashes upon the earth in the sight of all them that behold thee. And they that know thee among the people shall be astonished at thee. Thou shalt be a terror, and never shalt thou be any more. So I think the last part of this is shifting back to the prophecy of God's judgment upon the king of Tyre. But you saw in between, uh, Ezekiel is looking at basically the demonic spirit that has uh, controlled the king of Tyre and has influenced the, the king of Tyre. So uh, this king, by the way, his name was Ethbel Third. And uh, the prophecy starts talking about that, but then it moves into language that can only talk about Satan because he was expelled from the mountain of God. Now, by the way, this is uh, Jesus reinforces this idea in Luke chapter 10 and verse 18 when he says, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. So Jesus says, I personally was there to witness Satan being cast out of heaven. Uh, in Revelation 12, and I believe this is referring to the fall of Satan, it says in his tale, talking about the serpent, the demon, the devil, drew the third part of the stars of heaven, did cast them to the earth, and the dragon stood before the woman, which was ready to be delivered for devour her child as soon as it was born. I think this is this idea that uh, Satan uh, fell. He took a third of the angels of heaven with him, and uh, he was ready to devour uh, Jesus when he was born. And But uh, we know that even though there were attempts to take the life of all the babies in Bethlehem, that God found a way of protecting uh, Christ until he could become the sacrifice for our sins. So there's three steps in the judgment of Satan. And, or, and the reason we're talking about this is because Peter is talking about the fact that just as Satan's judgment is sure and just as the fallen angel's judgment is sure, false prophets will have that same judgment. But uh, Satan initially was expelled from God's uh, presence and expelled from the mount of God uh, or heaven. He was cast down from God's government. He walked before the throne. He was able to to be part of what went on in the throne room of God, but uh, he's thrown out. For a little while, though, he still had access to God. So in Job chapter 1, uh, Satan makes an appearance among the angels in the throne room of heaven, and God looks at Satan and says, have you considered my servant Job? And I bet you later Job wished that God had not said that about him because it basically ended up in a discussion. And Lucifer or Satan says, you know, well, Job only praises you because you protect everything he has. And God says, okay, you can destroy what he has, but you can't protect, you can't do anything to Job himself. And so somebody rushes in and tells him that all of his kids are dead and all of his flocks have been stolen and the enemies have come and carted off everything he had. And when Job still didn't refuse uh, or to, to worship the Lord, the next thing you see happening is, is uh, he says, well, but you're still keeping him healthy. And he says, oh, okay, you can take his health, but you can't touch his life. And so God places limitations on what Satan can do. So Satan, at least for a period of time, 
made an appearance before God in his throne room, but he wasn't allowed to live on the mountain. Now, during the tribulation period, and, and understand when we talk about end times, nobody knows what's really going to happen. We have ideas. Uh, I'm pretty sure that my view rests on good scriptural grounds. I believe that there's coming a time when God's going to rapture his saints or catch his saints out of the earth and that there's going to be a seven-year period of tribulation to follow that. Now, the seven-year period of tribulation, I think, is pretty pretty much unanimously agreed, except for people who are all millennialists who believe we're already, we've already had the tribulation, and now we're in the millennium, and every day the world is becoming more and more of Christ's kingdom. And I'm, I'm sorry, I can't see that. Those people have a lot more faith than I do to believe that's happening, because I think the exact opposite is happening. I think... The, the love of men has grown cold and iniquity abounds, just like Christ said it would. Um, there are certain signs of the end times that Jesus gives us in Matthew 24, which is the Olivet Discourse, and the large majority of those have happened. There are some things that haven't happened yet. For example, he talks about the, that this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all nations, and then shall the end come. And, and there's still a lot of the world that have never heard the gospel in their own language, and it's why it's so important that people like Mike and Diane Manville are, are trying to get the people of Nigeria the, the gospel in their own language. And there's other uh, missionaries who are trying to do the same in other parts of the world. And, you know, if you just go to Papua New Guinea, there's over 300, I think it is, different dialects and things that are spoken there. Many of them have never heard the gospel in their own language. But I want, I want to state very clearly, I can't tell you when the coming of the Lord is going to be. And I don't know how much has to be complete before the rapture and what might happen shortly after the rapture that's accomplished by the, the 144,000 witnesses, etc. So we've got to be really careful that we don't pin God down and say, well, Jesus can't return yet because such and such hadn't happened. Because Jesus himself said that the coming of the Lord would be like a thief in the night. And Paul told the Thessalonians that as well. In other words, in an hour that we don't think he's coming, he's coming. And it may just be that we don't understand the order of things that's going to happen. Uh, but I do believe that God's going to rapture uh, Christians uh, out of the earth. And my reason for believing that is in other instances of judgment, like the flood, where God destroys the world, he saved out eight souls by putting them in the ark. And there's other instances, you know, when God destroys Sodom and Gomorrah, he pulls Lot and his family uh, out uh, of there before the judgment comes. And I think there's just this picture of a God who wants to protect his children and remove them from judgment. But I could be wrong. Uh, my pre-trib, pre-millennial view might not be the right one. And I'm willing to say that's not a hill I'm willing to die on. I wouldn't die for my eschatological views. I'd be willing to die for my belief in Jesus Christ. I'd be willing to die for uh, my belief in the eternal security of the believer that the scripture teaches. There's a lot of other things I'd be willing to die for. My eschatology is not one of those things because there's a lot we just don't know. But I, I do believe, if you, if you understand scripture the way I, I do, that in the tribulation in Revelation 12 verses 7 through 13, uh, Satan's going to be cast from heaven and restricted to the earth. So in other words, he'll no longer be able to go before the throne room of God. He's going to be on earth. And then in the millennial reign, which is a period of time where for a thousand years, Jesus Christ sits on a throne in Jerusalem. Uh, there are still, there's still mankind because at the end of the tribulation, when there's judgment upon all mankind and the lost die and they perish, uh, but there were people that were saved during the ministry of the 144,000 witnesses during the millennial reign, and those people will still be here on earth, and they'll get married, and they'll have families, and, and you're going to have people waiting till they're 200 years old to get married, and people are going to say, oh, you're too young, and you shouldn't be getting married so young because you're only 200, and if you get sick and die before you're 100, people are going to know that you must have died in your sins, but there's still going to be people who live maybe a long life and they see Jesus sitting on a throne. He's in the daily news, and yet they're still not going to believe him. And at the end of the millennial reign, the demons, which have been cast into a pit for a thousand years, and Satan himself, are going to be loosed for a period of time. And those people who are not genuine believers are going to, uh, they're going to be revealed. In other words, the loosing of Satan will take people, the lost people, into their sins very quickly. And you'll be able to separate out those who are genuinely born again 
and genuinely trust the Messiah sitting on a throne in Jerusalem versus those who don't. And then there's the final judgment that, that Satan will be cast in the lake of fire. And once you go into the lake of fire, there is no out. So Satan and his angels will be going to the lake of fire. And in addition to that, uh, not only are Satan and his angels going to the lake of fire, but the Bible says, and death and hell and the sea gave up the dead which are in them. And these were cast in the lake of fire. And this is the second death. So even people that are in hell now are going to get to get out for a little bit. They're going to be cast in the lake of fire. And that's the final judgment of, of God upon uh, upon the wicked. Now, when Peter starts referring to the fallen angels, I don't think he's just singling out Satan because the other two illustrations he gives uh, of Sodom and Gomorrah and the flood are, are both from the book of Genesis. So I think he's thinking about Genesis 6. And we talked about this a little bit last time. Uh, some people think that angels mated with mankind, but an angel can't marry man. And angels, by the way, angels are not male or female. I, I was Googling for some pictures today of, of angels to put in the presentation, and uh, the captions would say a male angel or a female angel. Well, I know you see angels in art that look male or female, but in the Bible, they're, they're neuter gender. They are a host, but they're not male. They're not female. They're a host. In other words, they don't have the same kind of gender that we do, so they can't mate with mankind. But uh, we do read in Genesis 6 about the sons of God marrying the daughters of men. And I believe it's talking about the, the, there were demons that mated with mankind, or they were demon-filled people that went out and married others. And they had children that because of the power of the demons were, were exceptional in some different way. And so we just kind of have to go back and look at the scriptures. And in Genesis 6, it says, and it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born into them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were fair, and they took them wives of all, which they chose. And the Lord said, my spirit shall not always thrive with men, for that he is also flesh. Yet his day shall be 120 years. So prior to this, people are living like 900 years long. Uh, Methuselah lived to be 969, the oldest man that ever lived. Uh, Adam and Eve were in their early 900s. But now he says mankind is only going to live 120 years. And when the flood happened, uh, basically it released uh, the water canopy above the earth. And so now there's only a thin layer separating us from cosmic radiation. And immediately after the flood, you see lifespans going down until uh, people only live to be about 120 years. And then by the time the law of Moses is issued, it talks about the days of man being three score and 10 or 70 years uh, because there's been even further deterioration and other influences that cause the, the lifespan of man to be shortened. And anyway, it says there were giants in the earth in those days. And of course, we've seen there were giants even in modern days that so we have photographs of their, their carcasses essentially. And it says, uh, and also after that, when the sons of God came in the daughters of men and they bare children to them, the same became mighty men, which are of old men of renown. And by the way, you, you notice there, it's not saying that there were giants because of demon possessed men marrying. It just says they became mighty men of old men of renown. So in other words, these people had great power probably due to their evil practices. But we do see that in Jude, verses 6 through 8, uh, you don't have to say chapter 1 because there's only one chapter, uh, that there's something a little different here. It says, And the angels who did not keep to their own domain, but deserted their proper dwelling place. In other words, these are fallen angels. They've left heaven. They followed Satan. It says, He has kept in eternal bonds under deep gloom for the judgment of the great day, as Sodom and Gomorrah and the towns around them indulged in sexual immorality, and pursued unnatural desire in the same way as these are exhibited as an example by undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Despite that, in the same way also these men, because their dreams defile the flesh and reject authority and blaspheme majestic beings. So uh, Jude is echoing what Peter says. Basically, the idea is there were some angels that didn't keep to their own estate. Uh, they not only left heaven, but then they tried to do something to pervert mankind so that God had to destroy the world with a flood. And then there's a perversion that you see in Sodom and Gomorrah that's of a sexual nature, and God had to destroy those nations with fire. But he says they're, they're kept in their, their everlasting chains in Jude verse six. And this is a big deal. So they're, they're, they're not going to have another trial, uh, to judge them. They've already been judged. Their judgment's already secured. 
They're in a place that in Greek is called Tartarus, which is a prison of custody. It's exceptionally gloomy. It's not necessarily the same thing as Hades or hell. This is a place just for fallen angels. And their judgment is certain that will be ultimately consigned to the lake of fire. And so uh, I, I tried to Google for angels in chains, and I hope you can get a laugh out of this. And those of you who don't remember the old Charlie's Angels uh, show, but this is what came up. But here's what the Bible is actually talking about. And if you look at this diagram, you'll, you'll notice that uh, the bottom left-hand corner of this diagram talks about Tartarus, basically the prison of fallen uh, angels. And so we had the Garden of Eden, and then you go forward in time, and something happens to these fallen angels that they disturb men so badly that God decides to destroy the world with the flood, and that's the domain of the fallen angels. And of course, Jesus, uh, in Luke chapter 18, when he gives us the story of the rich man and Lazarus, which is not a parable, a lot of people, or excuse me, Luke 16, verses 19 through 31, a lot of people say, well, it's a parable, but Jesus didn't teach it as a parable. He taught it as fact. Uh, the Bible doesn't say the kingdom of heaven is likened to. He says there was a certain rich man, uh, and there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, which was laid at his gate full of sores, and moreover desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. The dogs came and licked his sores, and it came to pass that the rich man died and was buried. And in, and in hell, and then he says, Lazarus also died, and he was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. And in hell, the rich man lifts up his eyes and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I'm tormented in this flame. A fascinating story. But Jesus tells it is real. There really was a guy named Lazarus who was a baker. There really was a guy who was rich, and he died. He was Jew. And so the Jews used to teach that Abraham himself sat at the gates of hell to make sure no Jew ever went into hell. And Jesus basically is refuting this idea with the historical story he tells us in Luke 16. Well, that, so there was this place called Paradiso, and there was two, or, or there's a place called Sheol. Sheol was the place of death you see in the Old Testament. And there were two compartments in Sheol. There was paradise and there was hell or Hades. And they're the same place, but between the two halves of Sheol, there is a great gulf. And Abraham says to the rich men in Luke 16, he says, beside all this, between us and you, uh, there is a great gulf, so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot, neither can they come to us that would pass from thence. In other words, there's no passing between paradise and hell. And we know that when Jesus died, uh, it tells us in, in uh, 1 Peter chapter 3 that, that uh, Jesus carried, uh, well, Ephesians 4 says he carried uh, captivity captive. He carried away captivity captive. In other words, he took the people who were in paradise and he took them uh, to be in the presence of God because nobody could rise from the dead. Nobody could go to be in the presence of God until Jesus had died and satisfied the penalty for our sins and then rose again. And then he takes all the people in paradise and he takes them away. He, he carries captivity away. And so that's, that's what we have happening in this diagram shows it. And so all the righteous souls, when Christ rose, he carried all the righteous souls from Sheol to go to be in the presence of God. So now all that's left of Sheol is the bad side. That's hell or Hades. Uh, and then at the great and final judgment, it says, and death, which would just refer to Sheol generically, and hell, which would be the compartment where all the wicked dead are now, and the sea, because there are some people who died at sea, and it was believed that, that their souls were retained in the ocean, it says, death and hell and the sea gave up their, or it's talking about the people destroyed by the flood. It says, death and hell and the sea gave up the dead who were in them, and these were cast into the lake of fire. And that's the, that bottom right-hand corner of this document is the lake of fire. Now, the, 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 uh, so we have Tartarus, uh, which is over there to the left, which is the place of fallen angels. No, no man has ever died and gone to Tartarus. It's just fallen angels. When men died before Jesus rose, they went to paradise if they had a relationship with Jehovah. Uh, Christ has carried away people out of paradise, so all that's left of Sheol is hell. But there is coming a time uh, where during a thousand years, Satan and his angels will all be cast in 
to what's called the abyss. It's the, the bottomless pit. And they will be released for a short time during the millennial reign at the end of the millennial reign of Christ. So this is, this is a pretty good diagram for explaining how those things happen. And if you ever want to see this diagram again, you can just go download our, our electronic bulletin because all the slides are in there. So this is, this is what it's transferring. And so the first group that is judged, the first example Peter gives us of God's judgment is uh, the fallen angels. Then he talks about how he judged the antediluvian world. And I showed you this slide last week, so I won't go over it again, except to say that uh, it's fascinating to me how the Chinese uh, word chuang, which is for boat, uh, means a ship or a vessel with eight people, and that's exactly how many people were aboard uh, the ark. Now, in some translations, you'll see when it says Noah, the eighth person, and a lot of people think, was Noah really the eighth person? Let me go back to my genealogy. Uh, the Lexham English Bible does a little better translation of it when it says Noah and seven others uh, is really the way it should be translated. But we know that even though God warned Noah 120 years that this judgment was coming, and for 120 years we presume that Moses was preaching because the Bible does tell us he was a preacher of righteousness, these people still didn't respond. And then when the flood came, it came quickly, and there was no getting away from that judgment. Now, Peter was obviously impressed by the flood because he mentions it three times in his two epistles. Uh, he mentions it in chapter 1, uh, or excuse me, 1 Peter chapter 3. He says, God waited in the days of Noah while an ark was being constructed in which a few, that is, eight souls were rescued through water. Uh, by the way, it's interesting that in that same passage, it talks about Jesus preaching to the spirits in prison, but he saved eight souls in the ark and spirits means that when Jesus died, he went down into Tartarus and he proclaimed his victory over all the demons. And that's what it means when he said he preached to the spirits in prison. He preached or announced or proclaimed his victory over sin to the fallen angels that were chained in chains in Tartarus basically said, okay, there's no hope for you now for sure because I've, I've won. Um, in Second Peter chapter 2, it says he did not spare the ancient world, but he preserved Noah, a proclaimer or a preacher of righteousness. So that's something we know about Noah is he preached. Uh, he proclaimed. He didn't just build an ark. He preached while he was doing it. And he says, and, and seven others, when he brought, when God brought a flood on the world of the ungodly. And then in chapter 3 that we have yet to get to, he says, by means of which things the world that existed at that time was destroyed, being inundated by water, in other words, it was inundated by the flood. So Noah, we don't know exactly when he started building uh, the ark. Did he build it right away? And did he take 120 years? Did he build by himself the first 30 years till Shem, Ham, and Japheth got old enough to really help him? We're not sure of all the details, but we do know that for 120 years, he, he knew the project of the ark was before him. And we also know that uh, he preached the gospel to those around him. So he was a righteous man. Now look at this. It says, these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man without defect in his generations. Noah walked with God. I, I hardly think there can be a better description of a man than God gives him Noah right there. That's a great resume to have. He was an obedient servant of God. He obeyed when the entire world literally was against him. He was a shipbuilder at a time when there wasn't a lot of demand for ships because nobody had ever seen rain. So unless you lived near the coast, you had no need of a ship. And he was a preacher of righteousness. Second uh, Peter 2.5, he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved no, a proclaimer or a preacher of righteousness. So that's a great resume. Now God gives us, uh, Peter gives us a third example of God's judgment and how certain it is when he talks about the fact that God judged Sodom and Gomorrah. And it says he burned them to ashes. The words tephrosis here. Uh, it, they were reduced to just nothing but ashes. And God made them an example of what's going to happen to the ungodly. So much so that Jude says this. Sodom and Gomorrah and the towns around them indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire in the same way as these are exhibited as an example by undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Now, it's interesting, by the way, that Sodom is, has a sin named after it called sodomy, which today we call being homosexual. And we're told in 1 Corinthians by the Apostle Paul that someone who continually lives in the lifestyle of homosexuality or sodomy is giving evidence of the fact that they've not genuinely been born again. 
because if they were genuinely born again, their lives would change. It doesn't mean they wouldn't backslide once in a while, but their lives would change where they wanted no part of that lifestyle. Again, this is the thing that if you're genuinely born again, you're going to change so that your behavior uh, matches your profession. Your walk is going to match your talk. So this is key for us to know. But God judged Sodom and Gomorrah with fire. We know that uh, basically there were volcanic eruptions that broke up. There was hail and brimstone that fell from the sky. Uh, I don't know if that was the volcano spewing stuff out and it coming back down to earth or it was lightning striking. But one thing is for sure, the five cities of the plains, it wasn't just Sodom and Gomorrah, it was three other cities as well, were destroyed by fire because of their their sexual sin and because of their uh, going against God's ways. Now, it's very clear, as I mentioned last week, that Peter's talking about eternal punishment, and Jude actually makes that point for us. And so last week we talked about the fact that these false teachers, false prophets, were never born-again children of God. They came in talking like the real deal, but as Jesus said, they were wolves in sheep's clothing. Jesus himself indicated that the false prophets and the false teachers were never people that had a relationship with Christ. They were always wolves coming in among the sheep. And so Peter is saying that these people, he says, uh, he says, the Lord reserves the unrighteous to be punished in the day of judgment, especially those who go after the flesh in defiling lust and who despise authority. So they, they, they live for lust. They despise authority. Bold and arrogant, they do not tremble in awe as they blaspheme majestic beings. So they blaspheme God. They blaspheme angels, etc. Now, it, it would be terrible if we just ended right there with three examples of God's judgment. But God, in the same passage, leaves us some sense of hope for uh, the fact that he delivers the righteous. Verses 7 through 9, he says, And rescued righteous lot, worn down by the way of life of lawless persons and licentiousness. For that righteous man, as he lived among them day after day, was tormenting his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he was seeing and hearing. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to reserve the unrighteous to be punished at the day of judgment. Now, I want you to notice three times in those three verses, here first, the lot is being righteous. He was righteous lot. Uh, his, he was a righteous man living among the ungodly, and his righteous soul was tormented by what was going on around him. Well, I find that fascinating. Uh, first of all, it's comforting to me that God, delivers his people in, even in times of judgment. God rescued Noah and and his three uh, sons and their wives and uh, his wife, all eight people in the flood. God rescued Lot and his family from Sodom and Gomorrah. We do know that his wife turned around and looked back on the life that she had and regretted it, and so she was turned into a pillar of salt. Uh, but Lot doesn't really come out as much of a righteous guy to me when I read Genesis, because after all, uh, you remember the story that Lot was Abraham's nephew, and their their herds are prospering, both of them greatly. And Abraham realized that there were fights between Lot's shepherds and his shepherds. And in the spirit of family harmony, he says, I'll tell you what, Lot, I want you to pick where you want to live, and we'll go somewhere else. And so Lot says, he looked toward the well-watered plains of Sodom and Gomorrah. And he says, I'm going to go there. And there were great pasture grounds out there, and at first, Lot's living outside the city, but the next time we see Lot, he's at the city's gate, and the next time we see Lot in Scripture, he's inside the city. So, in other words, he started out just kind of observing Sodom and Gomorrah from afar, but then he had a position of respect and responsibility being at the city gate, and then he's living inside the city and, and daily looking at the things that were going on there. So, you know, it looks to me like he should have maintained more separation. But he starts out, we know, righteous. But it's also interesting to me, and I think this is a lesson for us, that that it says he was worn down. He was discouraged. He was, by living in a, a culture that despised God, despised righteousness, despised uh, sexual morality, despised everything else, to the point that his, it says his righteous soul was worn down. His soul became discouraged and compromised his faith. Now, I don't know about you, but that's kind of a warning to me because I, I feel like we're starting to live in the midst of Sodom and Gomorrah. 
Uh, it is impossible, and I, I, you could prove me wrong in this statement, but I think you, you'd find it challenging. I think it would be impossible for you to watch an hour of TV any time between 7 p.m. and 10 p.m. at night on any major network and where they have all their sitcoms and everything else and not see homosexuality pushed at you and shoved at you and referred to as just an alternate lifestyle and it's just as valid as a heterosexual lifestyle is. Uh, our world is shoving it down our throats. It's, got, it's gone from uh, walking down the back alleys in silence to, to doing parades down Main Street and, and shouting victory. Uh, and it's hard when you hold the Christian values to to constantly believe that. And so I can kind of understand what uh, living in the Twin Cities of Sodom and Gomorrah uh, with all their sexual debauchery, and it says that he was tormented in his righteous soul by seeing his culture every day. And I, the world, probably a lot of us feel like that. We feel tormented. Uh, uh, and then... Does, does his behavior show that he was a righteous man? Well, the angels came and said, you need to go into the mountain. But he says, oh, no, I couldn't be taken care of in the mountain. There wouldn't be food up there to eat. What would I do? Uh, God, I know you're trying to destroy these five cities of the plains, but there's this little city. And literally, the word little city in, in Hebrew is Zoar. And he says, can I go to the little city called Little City? And it's the smallest. And would you just not destroy that city? Go ahead and destroy the other four, but let us live there. So he went to him, and all of a sudden, the, the the fire breaks up out of the ground, and the coals start coming down from the sky, and lightning, and who knows what else. And the other four cities are burning, and they all all this burning starts right after Lot and his family has come into the city of Zoar. And so the people start to look at him a little funny. It's kind of like, did you all notice that all this destruction started about the time that Lot and his family showed up? And so he starts feeling threatened. So guess what he decides to do? He decides that they need to run into the mountains, the very place that God's angels told him to go to begin with. And then, of course, he loses his wife along the way. And at some point, he gets inebriated and his uh, daughters uh, decide that uh, because they 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 don't even know that there's life outside the plains. They think that they are now literally the last two women in the world. And the only way they'll have somebody to take care of them when they're old is if they can trick their dad into mating with them. And so we, we get birth to Ammon and Moab, which start two nations to become a thorn in the, the Israel side for the rest of history. So I, I want you to, to understand something here. Lot, it says three times in Second Peter that he was a righteous man, and yet he ended up living inside of Sodom that's destroyed. He ended up doubting God. He ended up losing part of his family. He ended up being part to a, a multi-generational disaster with the creation of the peoples of Anan and Moab, and yet God still saved him. I think the lesson here for us is that while my security in Christ is sure, I can lose a lot of blessings if I don't abide in Christ. And I can lose those blessings both now and in my eternal rewards. Because one day God's going to reward me for the works that I did, that I did for the right reason, that I did for God's glory, that I did for Christ's glory. And yet I can lose those rewards. And what am I going to use those rewards for in heaven? It's not so that I can have a plushy place to sit down in my, my easy chair for all of eternity. But the Bible says, I will take the rewards I've been given. I'll cast them before the Savior's feet as, as an act of worship. I want to have something to worship Jesus with. Now, Paul said it this way to the Corinthians. You need to listen carefully to this because a lot of people believe, oh, you can lose your salvation. But what you're really going to lose is the very rewards with which you're going to worship Christ. He says, for no one is able to lay another foundation than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds upon that foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, those are all things that withstand fire, that's a good thing. Wood, grass, straw, those are all things that will burn up in the fire. He says the work of each one will become evident, for the day will reveal it because it will be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the work of each one of what sort it is. So, in other words, there's going to be a judgment fire that's going to separate out the rewards that we take into eternity with us and those things that we did that are just burn up because we either did things for God with the wrong motivation or we did them so that somebody had pat us on the back instead of giving the glory to the Lord. He says, if anyone's work that he has built on it remains, he'll receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he'll suffer loss. But look at this. 
but he himself will be saved, but so as through fire. So you've all seen houses that burn down and the walls come tumbling down. There's piles of brick left and all the wood is gone. All the furniture is gone and there's smoke. And yet the one thing that tends to survive uh, houses built on a concrete foundation is the concrete. Uh, there's a slab uh, and that slab can be used again in some purpose. Sometimes it has to be jacked up and something else put down. But But what he's saying is when judgment day comes, we could lose all our works, but we're still going to have the foundation, which is Jesus Christ, because that's the one thing you cannot lose is that foundation. So Peter kind of summarizes here. He says, listen, the Lord knows how to rescue the righteous. He knows how to punish the unrighteous. He can. He delivers the godly. Uh, and the fact that he delivers the godly from trials is a great source of comfort to us. We ought to take comfort from the fact that Noah and his family escaped. We ought to take comfort by the fact that Lot and the members of his family escaped, although he did lose his wife along the way because of her own turning back. But God uh, uses a Greek word here, tarian, which means he keeps under guard the unrighteous for the day of judgment. And there's a great white throne judgment that's going to separate believers from non-believers. The non-believers are going to be cast in the lake of fire. Uh, God's going to continue. Uh, there's, there's chastisement in this life, but there's Hades after uh, this and then ultimately cast in the lake of fire. So the, the idea here is that, uh, God is going to reserve judgment and the very same judgment is given to the false teachers. And next time we're going to get into that detailed, uh, description uh, of false teachers. So what do we need to be doing? And I'm repeating slides I had last week because we still need to do it. We need to be immersed in the word of God. Uh, we need to be in the Word of God so that we remember all these stories and all these principles, and particularly because we need to be able to discern between the counterfeit and truth. If you're immersed in God's Word and somebody says, well, I've had a dream or I've had a vision, then you know that, wait a minute, uh, visions and dreams that were promised in the book of Joel, uh, Peter tells us they were fulfilled on the day of Pentecost. I shouldn't be looking for that anymore. Uh, I shouldn't be looking for... Uh, new sources of revelation because I haven't exhausted the revelation that's in the Bible. And the Bible uh, is given to us, uh, it says all scripture is given by inspiration of God and it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished into all good works. In other words, Paul told Timothy, the word is enough. You don't need anything else. It is. It will perfect, thoroughly furnish you to serve God. If you're looking to anything else as a source of revelation other than God's word, you're you're looking at the second best. Um, I remember when I was in seminary, uh, we were having a dinner one night, and it was it was potluck, and all the students at the seminary, most all of us were married, and we we had our wives fix up wonderful food and bring it up there, and we all sat down in the fellowship hall at the seminary, and we had dinner together, and it was wonderful, sweet Christian fellowship. And I happened to go over close to where the Coke machines were and uh, a table was because during the week they had snacks up there and they had a, a jar. It was based on the honor system. You could put 35 cents in the jar and you could take, you know, a Snickers bar or a set of crackers or something off of the, the table. And at that time, my professor preaching, a fellow by the name of Dr. Kenny Digby, uh, walked up behind me and, and he says, you know, Brother Robert, he says, this is just like the world why would you buy any of these cheap treats when you had all that wonderful food available? And yet, how often do people look for fulfillment in things other than God's word? And I, I, it made a lasting impression on me because that was a very good, what we, what we would call an object lesson. So we need to be immersed in God's word. We need to ask God to give us discernment. God, help me know if maybe if I don't have all the scriptures that I can quote instantly, but help me feel a discomfort in my heart when somebody tries to teach me something that's false or when somebody tries to teach me something that's, that requires me to look to them as an authority instead of the word of God. I, I hope that if I ever come to you and I tell you that uh, I've had a vision or a dream, that you'll, that you'll call me to task and say, well, Brother Robert, where is that in God's word? In other words, everything has to match the word. The Bible says where there's two or three in, with two or three witnesses, let every word be confirmed. And if somebody says they have a vision or dream, that's not being confirmed by two or three others, then you need to ignore it. Uh, and I would say that you always need to be able to find proof of what they're saying in God's word.
Um, we do need to ask God to help us remain open to reason because sometimes God has things uh, in that we need to understand that we don't. And then we need to use the Bible. We need to learn how to study the Bible and use the Bible to interpret the Bible. So we need to determine what kind of faith do we have. Uh, is it a dead faith? Is it a demonic faith? Or is it a dynamic faith? And we need to examine ourselves to see whether our faith is real. So uh, we need to um, we need to know how to seek godly counsel uh, if we're having trouble discerning God's will. Uh, but we also need to seek counsel. Say, hey, listen, can you look at my life and tell me if you see enough evidence that I'm that you think I'm really a Christian? You know, I, don't just trust yourself. How do other people see you are? And, and you know, have them be. You know, brutally honest with you, and that's that's a key thing that that we need to do. Um, so, as Brother Dennis comes to lead us in a song, I just want to ask you again: When you received Christ as your Savior, and you went through the motions of praying that prayer to invite Christ as your Savior, why did you do it? Was that the real deal? Was it because you understood Jesus died for your sins and He rose again, and that He did it because He loved you? And did you feel stirred by that love? And did you, by an act of your will, decide that at that moment you wanted to give the rest of your life to Jesus Christ because you knew it was the only reasonable thing to do? Or did you just kind of go up because your buddy or your friend went up or mom and dad told you to do that? So examine yourself this morning to see whether you be in the faith.